Good afternoon, brethren. Well, brethren, let's get into it. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 18. We're actually going to begin in a bit of a unique way because we're going to begin with the end today. We're going to begin with the conclusion. Not the typical way you begin a message, but I think you'll see why. It's perhaps one of the most emotional and gut-wrenching scenes in the entire Bible. Not only is it incredibly sad, but it's also incredibly complicated given the situation that produced it and the people involved. I'm referring to the scene we find in 2 Samuel chapter 18, beginning in verse 32. We read, And the king, King David, said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. A euphemism for he is gone, he's dead. Verse 33, then we read the king's response. And the king was deeply moved, deeply emotional, and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This young man that had just led a coup d'etat against this man, his father, and even tried to kill him. Yet despite all that, David deeply mourns when he learns about the death of his son. He goes from being the king to the dad. Well, I'm not a parent, but I suspect the parents here can relate to the humanity of David's response. When the news came, in David's mind, Absalom went from being a political enemy back to who he was originally to David, his son. The son he held as a baby, the son he had watched grow up, the son he had high hopes, hopes for. So he re reacted as the father, not necessarily as the king of Israel. But brethren, how did we get here? How did Absalom get here? How did David get here? How did Absalom go from this promising, talented, charismatic, handsome young man to a rebel who, as we'll see, died a very inglorious and undignified death? Brethren, today we're going to look at one of the greatest tragedies in the entire Bible. And when I use the word tragedy, I'm using it in the literary sense. A tragedy in literature is defined as a genre or a story in which a hero is brought down by his or her own flaws, sometimes one core fatal flaw, sometimes called in literature hamartia or hamartia. I looked that word up and found so many different pronunciations, it's hard to know which one to go for. Hamartia. The fatal flaw, the flaw that brings down an otherwise heroic and good person. Many tragedies feature a character like this, good people, people like Macbeth, Hamlet, or Anakin Skywalker, who a fatal flaw brings them down and creates the tragedy. Well, brethren, the story of Absalom is also a tragedy, but it is not a fictional tale. Of course, it's history. This was a real person, a real son to a, a real person, a very important person, and that makes the story even more tragic. So, brethren, in the message today, we're going to look at the tragedy, the tragedy of Absalom. We'll look at the hamartia, the fatal flaw that caused his downfalls, in fact, there were more than one, and how the mistakes of others even contributed to his fall. And we'll see the problem was how 
Aslam responded to those mistakes. And as we go along, we'll analyze the story for lessons we can learn to avoid the same mistakes in our life. So today's message is Lessons from the Tragedy of Absalom. We're going to look at this, since it is a story, we're going to look at this in, in various episodes, as in almost like it's a series that we're watching on, let's say, Netflix. So let's look at episode one. What would episode one cover about Absalom? Well, episode one is Absalom's family background. So let's begin by going back to the beginning of the story in 2 Samuel 3, and we'll begin in verse 2. 2 Samuel 3 and verse 2, what was the, the family environment that produced this, this young man? What were some of the reasons, the factors that led to who he ultimately became? Well, in 2 Samuel 3, verse 2, we read a little bit about the family that David created. Verse 2, sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon. His second was Kiliab. We're skipping some of the names. The third, Absalom, the son of Machah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, and so on. So David, so Absalom was David's third son after Amnon and Kiliab. It's interesting what the name Absalom means. The name is actually a conjunction of Ab, father, and peace, shalom, Ab shalom, son, father of peace. That was what his name meant. And you can think that possibly maybe David named him this because this was his hopes for this young boy. Whereas I'm a man of war, Absalom, father of peace, he's going to be different. He's going to be different than me. He's going to lead a different kind of life. Or perhaps it was the characteristics he saw in him as a child. He was maybe a peaceful, docile child. It's like he's going to be a father of peace. Anyway, it's really interesting that that's what the name means. Ab Shalom, Ab, father of peace. Ab Shalom. He was the product of David's marriage with his fourth wife, Makah, the daughter of the king of Geshur. Now, without getting into all the backstory, the Geshurites were a Gentile Arab. Aramean people who formed a small city-state on the upper east side of the Sea of Galilee, what we would call the Golden Heights today. And uh, it's likely that this marriage was created during the time that um, David was on the run from King Saul, where we read that he attacked the Geshurites. And it looks like, possibly, the scholars think that the king of Geshur made peace with David by giving him one of his daughters and in marriage. So she became one of his wives. And then Absalom and his younger son, younger sister Tamar, were the offspring of this marriage. So his mother possibly would, would be, well, we would call her a Gentile. What her religious views were when she was with David, we don't know. But point number one in this message, the first point we need to know is David's misjudgment built an environment for family problems. David's misjudgment built an environment for family problems. The reality is that Absalom's very existence was a result of David's personal error. First of all, David was practicing polygamy, and we know that was never God's intent for the kings. He told them not to multiply wives, but David fell into this mistake. And he created this situation where he had a number of children who were half-siblings in the same house. And when you have a household filled of ha with half-siblings, you know, they have the same father but different mothers, you're setting up a situation and environment for problems, and we'll see the problems occurred. And number two, making political marriages with Gentile leaders. He shouldn't have done this. So Absalom grows up where his biological mother is perhaps 
not really a part of the a part of Israelite religion, maybe has different religious beliefs, different ways of life, ways of thinking, and that could have maybe influenced Absalom. We don't know. <clears throat> but we do have to recognize that David bore some responsibility for creating this environment that was primed for problems. You know, he had eight named wives and 21 named children. Again, a household full of half-siblings. And I think that's a good example, a good lesson for young people, that you have to be careful about the family environment that you create, because the family environment that you create based on your decisions will have consequences on your children. And that clearly happened in the case of Absalom. So he had certain things working against him from the start. So let's now move on to episode two. Episode two, we're going to call this episode The Tragedy Within a Tragedy. The tragedy within a tragedy. We don't know much about Absalom's upbringing, but in 2 Samuel 13, we're told of a very tragic event that I believe, and I think it's obvious, became a defining moment in this man's life. We already saw how David built this family full of multiple half-siblings, and we see one of the natural results that occurred because of that. Second, 1 Samuel, I'm sorry, first, we're in second, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 13, Verse 13. No, verse 1. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister, and her name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. So again, remember, Amnon is the, is the oldest. Amnon is the son of David's second wife. And he develops this very strong attachment, this very strong desire we could say a crush, but it was a little bit more than that for Tamar, the younger sister of Absalom. Verse 2, Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. Though this really isn't a message about Amnon, we can see the problem with lingering lust that develops here in this man. He didn't initially act on the impulse, but he allowed it to fester over a long period of time, Apparently, where it even impacted his health, it became that strong of a desire. You've got to cut those desires off. Verse 6. Let's skip down to verse 6. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. There's a little more behind the story, but we're going to skip forward and see what he does. Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill, and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. So I'm sick. I'll be energized if Tamar comes and cooks a meal for me. So she does that, innocently so. And we'll skip down to verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom. And you will probably understand what is happening here and what he is setting up to happen. Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes, innocently again, which she had made, and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took, took hold of her and said, Come, lie with me, my sister. Again, we understand what's happening here. Verse 12, Then she answered and said, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. She tries to hold him back. She tries to reason with him. But when you're dealing with someone in this, in this state of mind, they can't really be reasoned with. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. She actually appeals to his own credibility. 
Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold, you, withhold me from you. Now it's an interesting that she says that. I think it may have just been a plea for desperation just to get out of the situation, because obviously David was not going to give a sister to her, her brother. Actually, that would have been against Israel's law to marry a sister. But I think she either said this innocently or was just trying to get out of the situation. Verse 14, however, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than her, he forced her and lay with her. Again, there's no whitewashing what this is. Uh, this, this was exactly as it sounds like. This was non-consensual, and this was forced. And this was very, a very evil thing that happened. But it did happen. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her exceedingly. After the whole deed was done, the sin was committed, he hated her. It wasn't, it wasn't true love, it was lust. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise and be gone. Basically treats her like garbage after he's gotten what he wants. Not only was this a heinous crime against his half-sister, which would have caused great emotional trauma, we see that in the text, but the way society viewed virginity at the time, this would impact the rest of her life. It was a both violent and selfish sin. Let's skip down to verse 19. Verse 19. Then Tamar put ashes on her head, so she's mourning. She's, this is emotionally traumatic. And tore her robe of many colors that was on her, and laid her hand on her head, and went away crying bitterly. Very sad. Verse 20. And Absalom, her brother, came to her. Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? He says. But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. You know, just let it go. Don't do anything. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. So Absalom is actually her protector. She goes to him for refuge. So Absalom is not a bad guy at this point. And Absalom was quite right to be very upset about this. Absalom is at no fault at this point. But it's interesting, he says, don't do anything. And, and I think one of the reasons he probably said this at this point was he probably believed that once his father found out about it, his father would act. Justice would be done. His father was king. His father was the ultimate authority, who would be ultimately be in charge and responsible for just making this, this right, executing justice. But verse 21, we see that what Absalom probably hoped, thought would happen, expected to happen, doesn't happen. Verse 21. And when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Rightfully so, he was upset, but he does nothing. He doesn't act. He doesn't execute justice. He, he just stays angry. And it seems like being impartial and actually holding his children accountable for their crimes, this was a crime, also a sin, was a weakness of David. He was negligent in this Situation. He didn't properly deal with it as the sin and the crime it was. And I believe this had a very significant influence and impact on Absalom's mind and on his attitude on, on, and on his views about King David. I think it planted a seed that would ultimately lead to Absalom's downfall. Perhaps Absalom had always had this idealized view of his father, you know, the mighty warrior, the great king, and had had this great high view and, and just assumed, well, he will do the right thing here, and then when he didn't do the right thing, when he didn't act, this may have been the genesis of feelings of resentment 
and this thing that he would build against his father. Perhaps those, this idealized version of his father came crashing down at this moment, and he realizes, hmm, maybe he's not the king I thought he was. Maybe he's not the father I thought he was. So I think a seed is planted here. Not just the seed of anger that well, what happened to his sister, but the seed of resentment and questioning his father. Verse 22. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. So it goes from just being upset, one injustice, to developing into hatred. Which leads us to our second point. Our second point. Beware of the danger of lingering hate and anger. Beware of the danger of lingering hate and anger. You know, in some ways, because of how horrible the situation was, it's tempting to give Absalom a pass here. But I think what we see is that the natural anger that one would feel eventually develops into something a lot darker in his mind and in his heart. It becomes something very, very vile, very evil. The spiritual lesson to learn from the lesson of Absalom's experience is to let no situation in life, no matter how awful the situation is that you see or that's done to you, become the seat of this kind of anger that just lingers and lingers and gets worse and worse. And you stew on it and you get more angry the more you, you focus on it because that kind of anger destroys us. Let's go to the New Testament really quick to Romans 12 and we'll see the spiritual the spiritual way that we should deal with this kind of anger. Hold your place in 2 Samuel. Romans 12. Where should Absalom have gone? Where, what should his response have been? What should the Christian's response be at this moment? So the, a horrible thing is done. A horrible injustice is done. Romans 12, verse 18. We read, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. We understand this is the, one of the hardest parts of Christianity. And we do know that Absalom did not have God's spirit. But again, we can look at Absalom's story and his situation and learn lessons. What we would do in a similar situation. You know, he says, don't give place to wrath. Don't let it just linger and fester in your mind and get worse and worse. You have to, you know, deal with it. Cut it off before it gets to that point. Flee from it. Work against it. And we also realize that you have to put things like this in God's hand. Vengeance is his. When injustice and evil happens... We have to learn. It's hard. It's not easy. It's not. It doesn't come natural. But put it in his hands because he will work it out. This is what Absalom did it do. He let it linger as hatred and took it into his own hands to act, as we'll see. So back to Absalom's story. I think we see the beginning of the building of his hamartia, this hatefulness that's building, this distrust for his father's authority. And I think we also maybe see a, a narcissistic view of himself. I will fix this. I'm the only one qualified to fix this. I'm the only one who's going to act. So that now leads us to episode three. Episode three in Absalom's tragic tale, which we'll label as Absalom's anger leads to murder. Anger leads to murder. So let's go back to 2 Samuel 13. 
and we'll look at verse 23. Well, we already read that, verse 23. We actually read throughout this chapter that he actually waits two years to exact his revenge. He, he, he conspires, he plots his revenge for two years. So he, he puts this gathering together, invites his siblings, especially Amnon, and we'll see what happens in 2 Samuel 13, verse 28. Verse 28, now Absalom had commanded his servants, again, he has this gathering, all of them are together. He commands his servants, saying, watch now, when Amnon's heart is married with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid, have I not commanded you, be courageous and valiant. Verse 29, so the servants of Absalom did as Amnon, did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the kings arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. So he has him murdered, he has him assassinated in public, in front of a group of people, and executes and kills, and executes his, his judgment, his, his punishment on Amnon. So he waited two years, and then he got his revenge. Which leads us to point three. Revenge is wrong and never makes a problem better. As we'll see, this did not solve the problem. It wasn't, okay, justice is served, it's now fixed. No, revenge just actually continues to make the problem worse and worse and worse. We already read in Romans that he should have really, you know, allowed God to allow to execute justice. Allow, allow God to work it out. Be patient. It will get worked out. But another scripture, we're not going to turn there to, to think about, is also found in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15. This is, this is the principle that Absalom should have had. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. So that's the lesson for us. This horrible injustice, don't render evil for evil. Don't do an evil thing to match another evil thing that was done to deal with it. Don't just multiply evil, because that's really what it does. It multiplies evil. That's what revenge does. It takes one evil and adds another evil to it, and usually more and more evil comes as a result of that. I found an interesting quote from the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. He said, the best revenge is not to be like that. End of quote. In other words, the best revenge is no revenge at all. Don't be like the person you're seeking to issue revenge against. Don't be that way. Be a different way. So going back to the situation, again, the point isn't that Amnon should have gotten away with the crime. The law should have judged him. And ultimately, God would have ex ex exercised judgment on him. But instead, Absalom chose murder. He chose to take it into his own hands and make the situation worse. So we pick up the story in verse 37. Again, we're in 2 Samuel 13. And we see what happens next. But Absalom fled and went to Tamai, the son of, I'm not going to say the name, king of Gesher. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Gesher and was there three years. So Absalom now flees to his mother's city. So he flees to this, this non-Israelite city-state. It's really interesting. He doesn't flee to one of the cities of refuge in, in Israel. He leads Israel. Perhaps that shows you where his heart is at this point. He's, he's drawn away from perhaps David and the religion of Israel. Who knows? Verse 39. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. 
So again, we see this particular weakness. Now his son, other son, is a murderer, and he, I'm sure he was upset for a while, but we're told he longs to be with him. He, he's not even going to execute justice from a political, from a judicial perspective on Absalom for murder. He longs to be with him. He longs for his son. But Absalom does have to leave and live in exile for three years. And he's only really allowed to come back because of a scheme, uh, Joab scheming to, let, to convince David to let Absalom come back into the land. But we won't get into that story. So he stays in exile for, for a few years, and then he comes back to Israel after a while because of something Joab does. So now let's move on to episode 4. Episode 4, and we see the man, the, the real man, the real Absalom fully developing, the Absalom we know. Episode 4, from pandering politician to outright rebellion. That's episode 4, from pandering politician to outright rebellion. So let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 14, and we'll pick up the story in verse 25. We'll see that Absalom becomes a semi-celebrity in Israel now that he's come back. It's really interesting. Uh, you know, a known murderer now becomes a celebrity in Israel. We'll see that the, in Israelite countries, the, the idea of putting people of low moral character into celebrity status is nothing new. It's, been, it's happening. It's an Israelite trait. Verse 24. Now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. Again, for his character? No, he's a known murderer. But why is he popular? Because he looks good. Again, the cult of celebrity. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. I mean, he was a handsome man. He was the Adonis of his age, I guess. And uh, well, I guess the, the Brad Pitt, people looked to him for his, for his looks. And it led to him being very popular. And again, I think we see the, the cult of celebrity here. He becomes a celebrity not because of his character or his moral standing, but because of his appearance and his, as we'll see, his charisma, even though he is a known murderer. Verse 26, and we, we find this interesting little side note about his appearance. And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. Now, if you look at different commentaries, they'll have different numbers. But I take, I've taken conservative. Some of them say that's maybe three to three and a half pounds. Some say four pounds. So at the end of every year, when he cut his hair, it weighed three to four pounds. That's a lot of hair. Uh, so this is a characteristic he becomes known for. I don't know, for some re re reason, I envision him looking like Brian May of Queen, the lead guitarist of Queen with the flowing, curly locks. So that's my image of Absalom. Who knows what he really looked like, but that flowing, long hair. But it points out, just the fact that the writer points this out, this shows that it was very unusual in Israel for someone to have this kind of hair. Not that this is a message about hair length, but it's worth noting out that the writer points this out. He had really long hair because this was likely not the cultural standard. People in Israel did not have long hair. If it was normal for men in Israel to have long hair, why would the writer point it out? So I think this leads a little more, this gives a little more context to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a, it's a dishonor to him? This isn't something Paul is bringing out of nowhere. This was the long cultural expectation of the Israelite culture that 
men just didn't have long hair. That's not how it was. Women had long hair, men had short hair. But I think we see that the hair was reflective of the attitude of the man. The hair reflected the kind of the rebellious, self-willed spirit that Absalom had developed. So let's go back to the story and pick it up in 2 Samuel 14, verse 28. 2 Samuel 14, verse 28. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. So eventually, Joab gets involved again, sets up a meeting, and they're reconciled, at least temporarily. Verse, chapter 15, verse 1. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. So in modern terms, he begins traveling with an, uh, an entourage. He starts building this kind of cult of authority now. Verse 2, now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was, whenever someone came with a lawsuit, came to the king for a decision, then Absalom would call to him and say, well, what city are you from? And he would say, well, your servant is from this city or that city. Verse 3, then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. You know, the king, where, where are the king's people? The government is negligent. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who had any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give them justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came to bow down to him, he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. Ugh, yuck. Flattery, pandering, politics, that's what he starts to develop. He begins, becomes this politician, kind of just flattering people. Oh, I, would, I, I understand your, your suffering, I understand your case. Oh, if I had the authority to do something. In this manner, verse 6, Absalom acted towards all of Israel, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. It's interesting. It's easy to interpret this as a show, but is it possible that, again, Absalom truly believed this? That, again, because he had questioned his father's ability to render judgment, that he really did believe his father and his government was inept, was unqualified to, to lead. And maybe Absalom genuinely believed that he was more qualified to be the king, more qualified to be the judge, more qualified to govern. I think, I think that is very likely. He really believed that he should be the king. So we see this, we see this root of bitterness has created this, the, a murderer has, who has created this now elevated sense of confidence and pride in himself. And we're about to see it's going to unleash, be unleashed in rebellion. So we see in verses 7 through 12 that Absalom eventually takes a group of followers down to Hebron and declares himself king. We're, we're skipping some of the story, but he declares himself king and has now started a wholesale rebellion against his father. It's interesting that he chooses Hebron as the place where he declares himself king. That's the same place David became king. So it's almost like he's mimicking his father's story. So we're not going to read all the details of that, but he steals the hearts of Israel, he gets a following, and he begins to work against his father. And now we're going to move on to episode 5. Episode 5 is Absalom's sin comes full circle. Absalom's sin comes full circle. So he's in the midst of a coup d'etat, a rebellion. He's declared himself the alternate king. David's now on the run, out leaving Jerusalem, running for his life again, just like he did from Saul. And now Absalom, once David leaves the capital, city of Jerusalem, Absalom and his people go in and take over the capital temporarily. 
and we see one of the most tragic elements of the story about to unfold. It's hard to read, but it happened. 2 Samuel 16, and let's begin in verse 20. Absalom is now being advised by Ahithophel. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. You know, we're, we're now we have David on the run, we're here, what should we do now? What's the next step in solidifying my power? Verse 21, and Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So he, he says, to solidify your power base and to show the whole nation that you are now in charge and that you are the alternate of David, he recommends that he go into David's concubines and, and uh, force them to, to be with him. Verse 22, so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house. They do this in public. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. This act, recommended by Ahithophel and acted upon by Absalom, was significant because this represented really the point of no return moment. Once he violated David's wives, and he does this publicly and in open, there was no going back at this point. And it was an act of supreme evil and disrespect, not just because it violated the law of Moses, because these were technically the wives of his father. Upon, on top of all that, it was assault. Because, this again, this was not going to be consensual. They did not have a choice in the matter. They were brought up there, and they were forced to do this. And that leads us to point number four. Point number four is that sin will often take us places we never thought we'd go. Sin will often take us places we never thought we'd go. Notice that Absalom was advised to commit this act by this advisor. It wasn't his idea. It wasn't his first inclination to do this. He didn't seem to go into Jerusalem intending to do this. But the idea was suggested to him, and he acquiesces to it. Stop and consider where his journey, his mental journey, his personal journey had come and had, had come to. Where did this whole progression start? It started when Amnon violated his sister, when, his, when Amnon did an act of violence, this kind of violence, to his sister Tamar. And he was rightfully enraged by that. He was rightfully enraged. But his story by allowing it to progress and get worse and worse, ends in him doing the exact same thing to multiple women, in public, in open, not in the confines of a bedroom, but on, the, on top of a roof. Not hidden in a room, but in open for all to see. He, he had allowed his sin to take him full circle. He became the person he initially hated. He became, the, he became Amnon. He became guilty of the same thing Amnon had done. He began by hating a predator and ultimately becomes a predator. That is the nature of sin. If we allow it to fester and grow, it often will take, take us to places we never thought we'd go. And that's one of the greatest lessons that we learned from the days of the leavened bread. Leavening, it starts small, but it just festers and gets bigger and bigger until it becomes something that hardly resembles what it was at the start. And that's what happened to Absalom. He becomes something he probably at the start never would have guessed he would have become. Never would have imagined that he would have possibly done this. 
Yet decision after decision after decision led him to this point. How do we present this from happening in our lives? How do we present ourselves, prevent ourselves from making the same mistake? Well, that leads us to point number five, and I think the greatest lesson we can learn from the tragedy of Absalom, and that's point number five is stop sin's progression by making the next right decision. Stop sin's progression by making the next right decision. There are so many moments in Absalom's story where he could have stopped, reconsidered, and made the next right decision, stopped this whole process. He could have stopped it when it was just a feeling of, of vengeance and hatred. He could have stopped it when it was a feeling of disrespect towards his father. He could have stopped the bitterness. He could have stopped after the murder. Okay, I've now murdered someone. I'm not going any farther than that. I've got to, I've got to pull back. I've got to reconsider. There were so many points where he could have stopped and made the next right decision. But he continued making the next wrong decision and progressing further and further into the tragedy that he became. He could have stopped, I will not harbor anger. I will not become a murderer. I will, I, will, I, will, I will use my talents to help Israel grow, not become a rebel and make it worse, not start a civil war. I will learn from my father's mistakes. I won't repeat them. I won't do something worse. I'm a, I, my name is the father of peace. I'm going to live by that name, not lead Israel into a civil war. I, I, I hated that kind of violence against women. I'm not going to perpetrate that myself. I stopped myself there. So many moments that he could have stopped and made the next right decision and stopped and, and led this progression backwards, not forwards. You know, and I think the moment Ahithophel had recommended this idea to him, that was the moment he, he should have stopped and said, no, 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 no. I will not do that. I will not go there. That's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. That's what started this. I will not do that. But tragically, he didn't do that. But we can when we look at our lives and see our fatal flaw, our hamartia, we can catch ourselves, we can stop, we can make the next right decision, we can repent, we can stop the progression. And that's, I think, the greatest lesson from Absalom. So let's now go back and look at the final act of the tragedy. The final act. Episode 6. The Tragic End. So we're going to skip, we're not going to look at everything that happens during the Civil War, but let's skip to 2 Samuel 18, verse 6. And we'll see where his decisions, where this progression ultimately leads this man. Yilanen reflects the actual progression of sin in our life. What is the end result of sin? Romans 6, 23. Well, let's see. Verse 6. So the people, David's supporters, went out into the field of battle against Israel, that, that's, that's describing Absalom's supporters. And the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. Skip down to verse 9. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree. He's actually fleeing from the battle now. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth, his hair actually, because it was so long. So he was left hanging beneath heaven and earth, and the mule which was under him went on. So the great, this great trait that he flaunted, this, this symbol of his, of his rebellion, of his pride, of his arrogance, he ultimately is hanging by it from a tree, completely in a vulnerable 
shameful situation. Verse 10, now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in the terebinth tree. So the servant leaves him there, but then brings Joab, and Joab, as we know he would, deals with the situation violently. Verse 14, then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. And he took, he said that to the servant, and he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. Skip down to verse 16. So Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his own tent. The war is essentially over. And we see the tragic and a glorious end buried in the woods of the son of King David. What started again is a simple resentment, a simple justifiable anger towards his brother ultimately leads him to this point. Hanging from a tree by his hair, brutally stabbed and buried in a hole in the woods. He's a living, breathing example of Proverbs 16, verse 18 in action. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That was Absalom's story. He was a living example of that person principle in action. So let's conclude where we began. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 18 and conclude with the end of the story. The news gets back to the king, to the father, 2 Samuel 18, verse 31. Just then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, There is good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. You know, he's just thinking about it politically. The political enemy has been destroyed. End of story. Let's rejoice. Verse 32. And the king said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, of course, in his way of saying that Absalom dies. Verse 33. Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, only if, if only I had died in your place, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Again, for David, the tragedy wasn't just on a political enemy. It was his flesh and blood. It was his child, the child he had named father of peace, now in an unmarked, in unmarked hole. In the, in the woods. And I think David, part of the, the tragedy and part of the mourning of David, I think, is because he knew he had a part to play in this. He knew decisions he had made contributed to this. Not that he was the cause, Absalom made his decisions, but I think David understood the whole depth of the tragedy. Brethren, the life of Absalom is truly one of the Bible's saddest tragedies. Its tragedy is tragic because it's so preventable. The, the whole story was so preventable. It didn't need to happen. Yes, things happened to Absalom that were not his fault, and they did influence the decisions he made, but the ultimate blame, the ultimate cause of the tragedy was how he chose to respond to those events, and that was the tragedy. This man with his natural skills, his gifts, his charisma, his looks, he could have been one of Israel's greatest leaders, he could have learned from his father's weaknesses and learned those lessons to serve and build his nation, not lead it to a bloody civil war. Brethren, the biggest takeaway we can learn from Absalom is this. Whatever things have happened in our life, on our level, you know, a much smaller level, 
things that happen totally outside of our control, they don't do us to tragedy, they don't do us to failure, they don't do us to this kind of end. Again, we can make the next right decision. We can overcome our own personal hamartia. So brethren, let's learn the lessons from the tragedy of Absalom.